Okay, I thought we'd start an occasional series on um, the Beatitudes individually. And the reason for that is that each saying in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12 is only the tip of an iceberg. The underlying bulk of meaning and significance of these sayings has their foundation in the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah 40 to 66. So actually, if you could leave your Bibles open to Isaiah 61, uh, and then we'll quickly at the end have a look at what Jesus meant when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let me just pray for us as we uh, look at that. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you that this is your word. These are your words and uh, pray now that we would come to them as your words and that you would continue to shepherd us by them. Cause uh, Jesus to be honoured through your word now in his name. Apparently um, Benjamin Franklin once said, Beer, beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. See, maybe Australians are onto something. Seeking the good life could probably be described as the main pursuit of most Australians. There are many shows on TV that tell us what the popular view of achieving a good life is all about and help us to do it. Better homes, better gardens, better food, more international travel, massive super payout. We even have brands of theology that endorse this, that teach that the favoured person by God is the one that's never sick and has truckloads of money. One of my favourite preachers to listen to is William Taylor, who's the pastor of St Helen's Bishopgate in London. Apparently he has a friend with such a physically attractive wife that this man has had other men cross the street and shake his hand and say, well done, mate. Is he the favoured man, the blessed man? Is the Tats Lotto winner the person who is blessed? All this money without working for it. Who is the favoured one in our culture? Or according to the ideology of our culture, the lucky one. And of course there are other extremes that relate to this part of scripture. Uh, some people view these Beatitudes in very modern socio-economic terms. So consider these scenarios. A person who feels very entitled believes that they shouldn't have to work if they don't want to, but should be provided for by other people's hard work through the welfare system. Because of this, they're poor by contemporary Australian standards. Uh, is such a person favoured by God? Because God has this bias towards the economic poor. Or alternatively, a very wealthy person who's tried everything this world, this life has to offer, but feels this extraordinary emptiness, searches for meaning in the teaching of Jesus... And he or she is automatically excluded because they are wealthy. The kingdom of heaven cannot be theirs because they have too much money. And if it is about how much money we have, where's the threshold? (laughs) 
See, the problem with all these scenarios is that they disconnect Jesus and his teaching from its proper framework, which is the Old Testament. If we want to interpret Jesus properly, according, we must do it according to the categories of the Old Testament, which was the worldview of the Lord Jesus Christ, not according to the ideological biases of our time and place. Otherwise, we end up with an idolatrous Jesus, a false Jesus. One of the primary reasons we have the Old Testament and the experience of Israel under the law is so that when Jesus came, he could be understood and interpreted correctly. So to work out each of these Beatitudes and what they mean, we must read them in view of their proper Old Testament Old Testament setting and expectation. We must do the hard work of looking at the Old Testament background to each one of these phrases and then understand their significance of Jesus' re-expression of these truths. So what we need to be briefly acquainted with is the book of Isaiah. And for those that have read it, what you'll understand is that the first 39 chapters among other things describes the failure of the existing Jerusalem at the time they failed to reflect rightly the Lord and if that did not change then the southern kingdom of Israel described as the region of Judah and the city of Jerusalem must be destroyed And sure enough, nothing changed for the better. And Judah and Jerusalem were exiled to Babylon for 70 years and the temple destroyed. Then what happens in Isaiah chapters 40 to 66 is that Isaiah prophesies to Judah and Jerusalem in view of the exile and he presents the way forward. Because there's always a way forward with Yahweh. And so Isaiah 40 to 55 particularly describe Israel or Jacob in their exile as a failed servant of Yahweh. A dismally failed servant that failed to reflect their Lord who'd saved them from Egypt many centuries beforehand. In fact, Isaiah even goes on to use stronger language than that. He calls them a blind and deaf servant. They can't hear, they can't see. They've become like the nations. And what is proposed in these chapters of Isaiah is a better or ideal servant. Surprisingly, a suffering servant. And there are four poems or songs in Isaiah 40 to 55 describing this ideal suffering servant of Yahweh and what he's like and what he will achieve, what he must do. So in Isaiah 42, we are introduced to this servant for the first time and some of the first things that are said about him is that Yahweh delights in him And the spirit of Yahweh is upon him. So now look at Isaiah 61, where we can see some more of the nature and role of this servant. Verse 
So firstly, to grasp this, we need to remember that in chapter 60 of Isaiah, it's talking about the restoration of a new Jerusalem and the numerous descendants of Jacob who will occupy it. So the old Jerusalem failed, was levelled, and Israel were exiled. Isaiah now is proposing or looking forward to this new, better uh, Jerusalem. In fact, it's a glorious Jerusalem that will emerge from the ashes of Babylonian exile. But for this to happen, it will require outside intervention. See, Jerusalem left to herself will become the same old Jerusalem whom Isaiah previously described as Sodom and Gomorrah. So look at Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1 and we see again someone who will do this. We see that God will intervene from outside. And we see that he looks suspiciously like the servant of Yahweh who will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And look look at what he will do in the rest of verse 1. The Lord has anointed him to preach good news to the poor. He has been sent, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. See, what we need to understand is that the exile to Babylon created this crisis of faith for Israel. It looked like all the promises of God were in absolute tatters. And And by chapter 61 of Isaiah, he is anticipating that even the return to the land won't work because Israel themselves have not changed. In the end, the exile didn't fundamentally change anything. It's the same old Israel that returned. And what we know from other parts of the Old Testament that describe the return from exile is that those who left Babylon to return to Jerusalem return to a situation of struggle, poverty and more covenant failure. And this created a certain despair among the returned exiles because not only had Israel not changed, but those who did want to see all these promises come to fruition, they were often oppressed or marginalised by those who took the opportunity to gain materially. I forget where I heard this, but apparently during the Second World War, someone was on a bus and overheard a conversation between two women that went something like this. One woman said to another, I hope this war keeps going because we've never had it so good. See, there will always be people who benefit from the misery of others and they hope that that misery continues for their own benefit. Slavery is one such thing, isn't it? Who's that good for? Not the slave. 
And the return from exile created circumstances where this could happen. And so what happened to the returned exiles is that the godly or pious Jewish people who returned for the sake of the glory of Jerusalem were impoverished by the covenant failure of those who ended up just using the opportunity to gain materially, to gain status and authority. So there was this situation of the godly being materially poor, being marginalised. And they grieved for the fulfilment of God's promises to restore Jerusalem properly and fully. They wanted this glorious new Jerusalem that the prophets anticipated. But instead, they had the Jerusalem that looked exactly like the Jerusalem before the exile. So look now at verses 2 to 6 of chapter 61. This describes the reversal that needs to occur. So verse 2, this servant of Yahweh will bring God's favour and note also, avenge himself on those who have abused or opposed the covenant. He will comfort mourners. He will replace despair with joy and gladness, verse 3. They will rebuild the ruins, verse 4. And verses 5 and 6, they will feed on the wealth of the nations instead of being exploited and ruled by them. Then verses 7 to 9, Yahweh is now speaking and we see some of the positive consequences of the work of this ideal servant. There will be no more shame for God's people. They will inherit a double portion. They will be known as people of promise who are blessed by Yahweh, particularly by an unending covenant. And verses 10 to 11, Isaiah himself is now speaking and he praises God for what he's going to do. To rescue Jerusalem from the filth that it is to this glorious promised new Jerusalem. And verse 10 is really important, isn't it, for our understanding of this, this idea that we are given, provided a robe of righteousness to be able to stand before God. See, because you think about it, if you're going to appear before God, you need to be dressed for the occasion. We don't want to be standing there in our filthy rags, covered in our shame and sin. We need robes of righteousness and we need to be given them. And this is the work of God's servant. This is the, the foundation of this glorious new Jerusalem that God is going to achieve. See, if this new righteous Jerusalem is ever to be achieved, it must be done for us. Israel left to themselves would never achieve this. It all rests now on this servant of Yahweh, the one who will preach good news to the poor.
Now, if you flick over to Matthew chapter 5, just before we have a quick look at that, we need to remember some of the things that were going on. At the time of Jesus, there were various ideas about how this kingdom would come, how this new, righteous, glorious Jerusalem would be achieved. The Pharisees, of course, thought that if we meticulously obey the law of Moses, this would facilitate the arrival of the kingdom. The Zealots believed the kingdom would come by military activity. And the Sadducees, who were the ruling class religious leaders, had the attitude, look, it's not that bad under the Romans, just don't rock the boat. Let's just protect what we have. Things aren't that bad. Their view was a bad Jerusalem is better than no Jerusalem. But there were still some looking for all that Isaiah promised and who knew that the kingdom of God was far bigger and better and they longed for that kingdom. And Jesus came along and said, I am the king of that kingdom. And we can see this in chapter 4 of Matthew. In chapter 4, Jesus is claiming the kingdom of God is near and he starts gathering the new Israel to himself. So it's no, you've probably thought about this, but it's no accident he gathers 12 disciples, is it? like the 12 patriarchs. This is Jesus, the king, gathering the new Israel to usher in the kingdom, the new Jerusalem. And this is important for understanding the significance of the first two verses of chapter 5. See, what we need to understand is that the whole Sermon on the Mount is shaped by Old Testament expectation And even the structure is based on the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, for example, Psalm 1, which is important because it begins the whole Psalter, and most of you will know it begins with the words, blessed is the man. The blessed man is one who is nourished by God's law, the one who delights in it. But in chapters 5 to 7, Jesus comes along and describes what a blessed person is in the kingdom of God, which he is bringing. So these first verses of Matthew are known as the Beatitudes. This simply means blessed. And blessed is a word that means to experience happiness through the favour and approval of God. The ultimate expression of blessedness in the Bible is the good life, the good life of the kingdom of God. But what sort of person will experience the good life or this state of blessedness, of God's favour in an ultimate sense? And Jesus is about to start unfolding that and the first two verses of chapter 5 give us some perspective on why Jesus is qualified to do it. Again, these verses are shaped by the Old Testament. You would know from your reading of the Old Testament about someone going up on a mountain to listen to the words of God. 
This has happened before. Except now the one sitting down is not listening. He's teaching. He's speaking the words of God. This is a new Moses bringing a new law. Or better, this is the greater Moses bringing a greater law to the new Israel. This is the new covenant. These blessings are the blessings of the kingdom of God as it comes and is established. So verse 3, blessed is the one who is poor in spirit. This is why we've gone to the trouble of understanding the Old Testament, particularly the exile, because any godly Israelite is going to see themselves as a continuation of what happened before. They will look at Israel seeing themselves at the same time and know that there is something fundamentally wrong with humanity, with themselves. And that's what this means. Blessed is the person who is poor in spirit. Blessed is the person who can see this. It's a recognition that no contribution can be made to merit entrance to God's kingdom. Poor in spirit understand the wretchedness of the human condition. And often those who are materially poor see this more clearly. Which is why in the Old Testament it's the godly who were often poor. The the poor in spirit come to God with humble and empty hands. Poverty of spirit isn't cowardice or weakness. It's acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. It's acknowledging that when it comes to bringing peace on earth and a glorious new Jerusalem and establishing justice, human ideologies and socio-political systems have come up empty. Economic poverty was closely associated with godliness and humility because often then, and sometimes even now, wealthy arrogance hinder humble dependence on God. But it isn't just economic poverty that creates dependence. When uh, Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2 was unable to have children, And she was given Samuel and she praised God saying, he lifts up the lowly, he exalts the poor from the dust. And of course the exiles in Babylon who cared about God's purposes, such as Daniel, clearly acknowledged that they deserved it. The exile wasn't God being harsh, it was God being merciful. See, to people who see this, Jesus is good news. Because through him, people will inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's hard for us to see how radical these sayings are now because we're so familiar with them. It's hard to see how stupid this would have sounded to most of the Israelites at the time. 
See, Roman society was like ours. It's the movers and shakers who are the important people. If anyone's going to inherit anything, it's them. But the kingdom of God at the time was, say, expected to belong to, say, the Pharisees, the good people, the respectable people, the religious people, the deserving people, the together people. But the kingdom of heaven, Jesus tells us here, is not for the typical Pharisee who see themselves as righteous already and have not seen themselves rightly as a continuation of the failure of Israel to be truly obedient from the heart. The kingdom of heaven is not for the self-righteous, not for the entitled. I think, you know, most Christians are not foolish enough to think they're going to show up to heaven with some sense of entitlement of some sense of deserving. God owes me. The kingdom of heaven is not for the Sadducee type person who was comfortable with compromise with Roman rule because they benefited from it economically. Theologically, they're a bit like the liberals of our time who say things aren't that bad. The corruption of the human heart is exaggerated. God's love means everyone will go to heaven. There is no real final judgment. But this verse doesn't say, blessed are the naive and comfortable. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who know we have no claim or right on God's kingdom. Who know that approaching God with any sense of entitlement is fraught with danger. The kingdom of heaven was not for the zealot of Jesus' time who believed that the kingdom of God needed to come by a sword and we need a new David to give it to the Romans and re-establish political Israel, and then everything will be fine. (laughs) This, of course, is a classic example of failing to learn from history and failing to read the Bible properly. The failed return from exile was not a political failure. It was a spiritual one. As the failure of humanity has always been. See, this state of favour or approval by God is for the poor in spirit, which often corresponded in Jesus' time to the tax collector and sinner. See, as a tax collector and sinner, you can't put your hand up and say, I'm a righteous person. I'm entitled to the kingdom of God because everyone knew they weren't. They could see they weren't. See, only to someone who knows in the depths of their heart that they are corrupt, the ultimate answers cannot be found in 
socio-political or revolutionary action or some fake external veneer of righteousness. See, the only answer is a person who rules not by taking up a sword but by dying on a cross. And in so doing is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. For people who see that, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So are you feeling great about your life in this world? You're financially secure. Your health is good. You're a well-known and respected person. You don't see that the problems in this world are that big and you're certainly not a contributor to the problems in this world. Well, that could be problematic because you may wrongly believe that you don't need the Lord Jesus, that you're somehow entitled to the favour and blessing of God, that your level of righteousness is sufficient to impress the holy, true and living God. Alternatively, are you feeling inadequate? That your attempts at participating in bringing a better world are failing? That you're worried about the various forces at work in this world that deceive and manipulate and entice people away from God? Do you know in yourself that if you were to stand before God on your own merit, that you would be utterly rejected? (laughs) Well, in a sense, that's great. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. See, it's not for the spiritually wealthy, (laughs) but for those who know that they are utterly ruined. See, ironically, you must be spiritually bankrupt to be blessed, to inherit the kingdom of heaven. We must come with empty hands or not come, certainly not come with claims of entitlement and self-assurance. Instead of uh, concluding by my own prayer, Let me conclude with the words of a far superior one, the prayer of Hannah. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Take Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. (coughs) The barren has borne seven, But she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. 
The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honour. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed one. Amen.